Hey family, this is Josh Eggerson. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Faith Restored podcast. Faith Restored is a local church with a global mission to reach the lost and teach the found. And it's our hope that the word you're about to hear today encourages you, inspires you, and builds your faith. If you'd like to learn more about Faith Restored, you can visit us on our website at faithrestored.church. Now let's go live into this week's message. 1 through 11. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 11, and then I'm going to read verse 23. Amen. And verse 24 won't be on the screen because I didn't tell them I was going to read verse 23. Glory to God. Amen. If you have it, I want to say, I got it. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathane, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, named Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuch, an Ephraimite. And he had, here's trouble, two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And the day came when Elkanah sacrificed, that when the day came that Elkanah would sacrifice, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. Somebody say double portion. For he loved Hannah, here it is, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord for worship, she would provoke her so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest was sitting in the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And she made a vow to him and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And the razor shall never come upon his head. Verse 11 again, she says, and she made a vow to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. Here it is, but will give your maidservant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach for a little while using as a subject the God who knows best. <laughs> Amen. The God who knows best. Father, thank you for this time. Help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. This account in 1 Samuel is interesting because it presents us with a unique opportunity as preachers. 
Because one of the keys to effectively preaching the Bible is to get the hearer to see themselves in the text so that they can apply the truth of that text to their lives so that once the message is complete, we haven't just heard a message, but we can actually live the truth of that message in our lives. This is often difficult because sometimes when we read the text, the people that we read about are so much larger than life uh, that we can't imagine ourselves being anything like the people in the Bible. How, how can we identify with Noah in the flood or Daniel in the lion's den or Moses at the Red Sea or at the burning bush or Joshua at the walls of Jericho? Stories like these filled with people who displayed monumental conviction and mountain-moving faith have a way of making it seem like the people who trusted and followed God in the Bible are so different than we are. And because of this, it's oftentimes hard for us as preachers to connect the ancient text of Scripture with the present truths of our lives. But every now and then, God allows us to come across a story in the Bible that comes right down our aisle sits right next to us in our seat and allows us to clearly see ourselves in the pages of the text. And I believe that this is one of those stories because in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're allowed to look in on the life of a woman who has come to the end of her rope, uh, a desperate housewife, if you will. And in her desperation, we see her crying out to God for a blessing. And no matter who you are, or where you're from, or how long you've been in church, you should be able to identify with that. Because if we be honest, most Sundays when we make our way into the sanctuary, no matter how good we look on the outside, we're coming after dealing with heartache in our homes, jealousy on our jobs, misery in our minds, and we've crawled our way into the house of God because we need God to do something for us. We've struggled and strained not to get to get in the building, not because we want to hear our favorite song or to hear our favorite preacher, but because we need something supernatural to happen in our lives. And we're believing God for a blessing. And I don't know who I'm preaching to in the building, but is there anybody who can admit, preacher, you talking about me? Uh, because after all the hell I've had to handle while trying to make it for the master, I'm in need of some help, and I'm believing God for a blessing. As a matter of fact, do me a favor real quick. Don't touch them, but just look at them and tell them, neighbor, I can't let you all in my business. Tell them. Yeah, I can't let you all in my business, but I'm believing God for a blessing. Yeah, because the truth of the matter is we're dealing with stuff in our lives that only God can fix. We're, we're dealing with problems and issues and circumstances that only God can help us with. We're, we're, we're dealing with issues that if we told our friends about them, they'd stop being our friends. If we told our followers about them, they'd stop following us. If we told uh, our spiritual leaders about them, they'd sit us down for ministry. So we've got to keep them private. But the truth is the reason why we crawled our way into church this morning is because we're dealing with some things that only God can help us with and we're believing God for a blessing yeah uh, if we've been living for any length of time then we know what it's like to be beaten battered and bruised by life and to find ourselves in a place where we're desperate for God to bless us and one of the hallmarks of true Christian faith is that when the Christian is at the end of their rope they don't look for help outside of God but rather they decide that if help is going to come, then it's going to have to come from the Lord. True believers, hear me, trust God 
before their blessings. But what I've come to understand is that many of us as believers have missed out on a key part of our development because although it is true that true believers have to trust God for their blessings, many times we stop there. And once we finally get what we beg God for in our desperation, once we are no longer desperate, we take our blessings and do with them what we want to do with them and don't even consider consulting God about how to handle what he has just blessed us with. This is why we find so many people who have mismanaged their opportunities and wasted seasons under open heavens because we are experts in asking God for the things that we want. And we'll pray with fervor and we'll fast with intentionality until God comes through and we get what we want. But once we have it in our hands, we have the audacity to take our blessings home and tell God, all right, thank you, I'll take it from here. This is because deep on the inside of each of us, there is an ignorance arrogance that thinks we know better what to do with our lives than God does. Yeah, yeah, we may never admit it out loud and well, we, there may be some smaller, less significant uh, issues of our lives and areas of our lives that we've surrendered to God, but as it relates to the things that are closest to our hearts, uh, things like our money, our time, our purpose, our families, our hopes, and our dreams, we're quick to ask God to bless those areas of our lives, but slow to surrender those areas of our lives, and this is because we're able to acknowledge that we serve a God who knows how to bless us, but our flesh won't allow us to accept that the same God who knows how to bless us also deserves to be trusted with the things he has blessed us with. This attitude, beloved, and the children are in children's church, right? I can, can I talk real? Uh, this has led us then, beloved, uh, from the worship of God, hear me, to the prostitution of God. Yeah, we, we've gone from the worship of God uh, to the prostitution of of God. Let me help you. Uh, the old heads would tell us growing up, uh, you don't pay a prostitute to sleep with you. You pay them to go home. Yeah, meaning that the reason why you pay a prostitute is not so that they can deliver the gratification of sex to you. Because if you're a grown up, you can find that most places for free. You pay a prostitute so that you can be delivered from the expectation of intimacy once the act of gratification is over meaning that you can get what you want from them, then pay them for their services, and once you've paid them, what you do with your life after you paid them and they've done their business is none of your business. Yeah, and while many of us cringe and we laugh and we snicker at that, the truth is, if we be honest, that, that describes many of our relationships with the Lord uh, because we ask God for what we want. And while we are trying to get what we want, while we're in the moment, while we're in the act, we're faithful and we're engaged and we're, in, we're intimate and we worship God. Uh, and then when he give, gives us what we've asked him for, we give him a little praise or we sow a little seed as if we're sending him on, our, on his way until the next encounter. This is because whether we want to admit it or not, we've moved from the worship of God, beloved, to the prostitution of God. And that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is demonstrated not in our ability to trust God for a blessing, hear me, but it's demonstrated in our ability to trust God with our blessings once he puts them in our hand. Let me say that again. Biblical faith is not demonstrated in our ability to trust God for a blessing, but it's demonstrated in our ability to trust God with a blessing once he puts it in our 
hands. God, help me. And we've got to come to the place where we believe that God is not simply the God who knows. Because we can shout about him being the God who knows, right? The God who knows that we're hurting. He knows that we're broken. Knows we need healing. Knows that we need help. He's, he's the God who knows. But he can't just be the God who knows. He has to be the God who knows best. And because he's the God who knows best, I can't just believe that God knows how to deliver a blessing, but I've got to believe that the same God that knows how to deliver a blessing is also worthy to be the director of a blessing once he delivers it to me. Because he will direct the blessing that he's delivered for my greatest good and for his greatest glory. God help me. And God wants us to mature so badly that he will allow us to go through the pain of continually failing at managing our own blessings and even allowing us to lose some of the stuff that he's blessed us with until we surrender to the reality that he can manage our lives and our blessings better than we can. God help me. And I don't know if there's anybody in the building who will be honest, but is there anyone here who has gotten their butt whooped by life, the world, the devil, and your bad decisions enough to you've come to the place where you understand that God knows what's best for you. I know you might not want to say amen right there because it will make people feel like you're not an expert, but the truth of the matter is none of us are experts in how to run and manage our lives. The only reason why we have any bit of success is because God has made us successful and we've got to acknowledge the fact that after how we've messed up, how we've screwed up, how we've burned bridges in our lives, wasted finances that God has blessed us with, the truth of our lives is that he knows what's best for us. True believers must not only trust God for their blessings, but they got to trust God with their blessings. This requires us to accept the possibility, beloved, that maybe God isn't just the God who knows. Uh, because we'll shout over him being the God who knows. Uh, we'll praise him real hard because he knows. You ain't got to tell him. I, I, I knew what you had need of before you asked of it. We'll, we'll shout over that. But we've got to accept the possibility that maybe he's not just the God who knows. Maybe, just maybe, he's the God who knows best. Whether you know it or not, beloved, this is the possibility presented to us in this particular passage of scripture. Because in 1 Samuel, we're able to eavesdrop on the family drama of a man named Elkanah who has two wives named Hannah and Penina. And the problem is not just that he has two wives. But the problem centers around the fact that Penina has given birth to many children to Elkanah. But Hannah, after years of marriage, has not been able to conceive. This is more complicated when you understand the culture of the text. Because culturally, you have to understand, this is not the 21st century America. Uh, this is first century Judaism. Okay, So Elkanah did not grow up imagining having two wives. What more than likely happened was that Elkanah married Hannah first. And loved her, but for the sake of his legacy and his lineage, married Penina because Hannah was unable to conceive. And according to the laws of Judaism, because she was unable to conceive, he had a right to divorce her and keep Penina. But instead of divorcing her because he loved her, he kept her in the house and had children with her replacement. So now Hannah is living in her house, having to share her husband with a woman who is a constant reminder of something she was unable to do. 
And what makes matters worse is Penina, I'm sorry, I keep calling her Penina. Penina would taunt and torment Hannah because she was unable to do for Elkanah what Hannah had tried to do but could not. She's living in the house with a constant reminder that although she had the love, she didn't have any fruit. And then she had a woman that had the fruit but didn't have the love, constantly rubbing the fruit in her face. That leads us to understand, beloved, that fruit produced is not a sign of favor from the Father. Uh, because you can have something and still mean nothing. God help me. I, I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, so, so when we get to verse 11, uh, when we get to verse 11, we're allowed to peek in on Hannah's prayer of desperation. And she makes a promise to God. Uh, look at verse 11 saying, O Lord of hosts. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Hannah makes the promise that if God gives her what she's asking for, that she will give him back to God. Because she knows that she's hoped and dreamed and imagined the joy of having a child to call her own. She's fantasized about being able to give Elkanah a child to carry on his name. And a baby to take to the house of God for worship. But Hannah decides that if she can trust God for the blessing of a son. Then God can be trusted with the son that he's blessed her with. Because he's the God who knows best. And in Hannah's story, beloved, I believe that we can see what it means to surrender our lives to the God that knows best. Are you still with me? Uh, the, the first thing we see from Hannah's life, beloved, is first of all, uh, Hannah was in warfare at her house. And the warfare in her house had made her weary. But she didn't allow her weariness from her warfare to keep her from going to worship. God help me. Yeah. Uh, verses 3 and 4 of the text, if you got your Bible open, uh, it said that Hannah, or Elkanah, Hannah's husband, would go up to worship every year at the same time. Verse 4 says that his wives would come with him. So Hannah was mad. She was irritated. And her irritant was at church with her. But she did not allow the fact that her irritant was at church with her to stop her from coming to church and giving God what God deserved. God help me. I want to talk to some people now who feel like you got a reasonable excuse because of pain and pressure and agitation and irritation to miss worship. God says you don't have an excuse because you can't allow the weariness of warfare to keep you out of worship. Why? Because worship is the best warfare that you have. Yeah, worship is the best war. I wish I had some folk in here that felt like hearing a sermon today. Uh, uh, worship is the best warfare that you have. When you're at the end of your rope and you can't fist fight your enemy and you can't throw a rock at your enemy and you can't make a Facebook status to get your enemy, worship is the best warfare that you have. Why? Because fist fights and Facebook and Twitter and all this crazy stuff works against the flesh, but the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so you can't allow your, war, your warfare to keep you out of worship. But not only that, Hannah's life also teaches us that we can't allow the despair over not getting what we desire 
to make us forget that even though we haven't yet gotten what we desire, we've still been gifted with more than we deserve. Yeah, let me say that again. Hannah's life teaches us that we can't allow our despair over not getting what we desire to make us forget that even though we haven't gotten what we desire, we've still been gifted with more than we deserve. Look at verse number five. He says, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion. Why? For he loved Isaac. Yeah. Hannah didn't have children. But because he loved her, he blessed Hannah as if she had children anyway. And sometimes, beloved, we're so immature and self-centered that we're so focused on what we don't have that we forget that every day God is blessing us with more than we deserve. God, help me. And maybe the reason why we haven't been given access to more is because we haven't learned how to truly be grateful for what we already have. God, help me. Yes, and it is gratefulness then. I want to help somebody. It's gratefulness that helps you transition from being a praiser to a worshiper. Yeah. It is gratefulness that helps you transition. Why? Uh, Bishop, why do we need to transition from being praisers to worshipers? The same reason why you need to go from the 11th grade to the 12th grade. It's about maturity and matriculation. You've got to grow. Uh, because praisers give God glory for what he's done. Worshippers give God glory for who he is. And you've got to stop asking him to do stuff long enough to be able to appreciate him for who he is. God, help me. Stop asking for his possession and learn to appreciate his person. God, help me. Yeah, when, 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 you, out, when you learn how to be grateful, you're able to look at your life and you're able to look at your circumstances and, and say, you know what? Uh, I don't have everything I want, but God, thank you. I've got more than I deserve. God, I, I don't deserve to have the wife that I have, the husband that I have, the children that I have, the, the job that I have the money that I make. I should be broke. I should be destitute. I should be outdoors. I shouldn't have anything. But God, you bless me with way more than I deserve. And gratefulness is what allows you to transition from being a consumer to being a producer. Because praisers take, but worshipers give back. God, help me. Oh, God, I, I don't want to offend my praisers. God, help me. I don't want to offend my praisers because I appreciate the praisers. But at some point, you got to grow up enough to where you don't have a, a praise and worship leader to make you go into a praise break. You don't have somebody that has to pump you and prime you to get you to do something, make you think about what God has done. You should just be able to praise him because he's good. God, help me. Praise him because no matter what he does, he's still good. No matter what a li what life happens, uh, what happens in my life, rather, he's still worthy to be praised. Yeah. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, the Bible says that he gave Hannah a double portion, which means uh, literally that he blessed Hannah as if she had what she was longing for. Hmm. This, this makes Elkanah's comment in verse 8 more apropos, makes it easier to understand because it shows us then that Elkanah is telling her I've given you something like you have a child, even though you don't have a child. Yeah, I've blessed you like you have children, 
even though you don't have children. And some of us, God help me, which means that when Hannah shows up to church, she shows up to church looking like, I'm trying to help you see it, uh, she has what she does not have. Everybody in church doesn't know what she's going through at home. Everybody in church doesn't know what she's dealing with behind closed doors. But Elkanah blesses her so that when she stands up in front of people, she looks like she has, God help me, you ain't got it yet. She looks like she has what she doesn't have. Let me say it again. Elkanah blesses her so that when she gets to church, she looks like she has what behind closed doors she doesn't have. And some of y'all need to know that that's your testimony. God has blessed you to look better than you really are. God, help me. He, he's allowed you not to look like what you're going through. He's allowed your marriage to be messed up and allowed your finances to be crazy and allowed your children to be acting a fool and allowed your mental to be trifling sometimes. But instead of letting you look like what you're going through, God blesses you to the degree that you don't look like what you've been through. Okay. I got to quit. My, my, my time is up. Y'all tired of me. Let me, uh, let me, let me go here. Uh, so, so, so what do we learn from Hannah's life? Uh, Hannah didn't allow her warfare to stop her from going to worship. She, she, she teaches us that we shouldn't allow our despair to make us forget that even though we don't have what we desire, we still have more than we deserve. Uh, but ver, ver, uh, point, point number three, uh, I really had some issues with this one. I had some issues with it. Uh, because I felt like point number three, the point I'm about to give y'all, I felt like it could have been a sermon all by itself. Um, like I, I really felt like today that if I preach this, uh, I'm going to be here too long uh, because it's a word that everybody needs to hear. Um, and I don't have time to preach it like I want to preach it. But, but here it is. Uh, this, this is the, the, the big thing that we learned from Hannah. Hannah's life teaches us that sometimes, God will put a pause on our productivity so that he can show us that his pleasure with us is not based on what we can produce for him, but rather it's based on the consistency of his presence. Hmm. God will put a pause on our productivity to show us that his pleasure with us is not based on what we can produce for him, but it's based on the consistency of his character, okay? Uh, look at verse number five. Uh, it says, but Hannah would give her, or but Elkanah to Hannah would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, here it is, but the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Didn't say she had a medical condition. Didn't say that she had trauma that prevented her from having children. Didn't say that Elkanah was impotent. Clearly he wasn't because he had had children with somebody else. But the Bible is clear. Did not call her barren. Because the Bible in this same book calls another woman barren. But the Bible literally says, Yolanda, that the Lord closed her womb. He closed it. He shut it off. But Hannah was so fixated on the fact that her enemy had what she didn't have in the way of children and productivity that she didn't realize 
that even though she hadn't produced what Panina had produced, she had still obtained what Panina hadn't obtained. Because the Bible says that although Panina had been productive, her productivity did not make Elkanah love her. God help me. And as believers, I want to help somebody now. As believers, we've got to get delivered from the lie that our value before God and subsequently before people is measured by what we bring to the table. We are not loved by God, hear me clearly, because we're valuable or because we're productive. We are valuable because God loves us. And it is that love that enables us to be productive. Why is this important? It's important because once we catch this revelation, then we'll be free from the never-ending cycle of trying to prove ourselves through our work and through our accomplishments, and we'll be liberated from the prison of trying to seek the praise of others, not just inside the church, but in our homes, on our jobs, in our relationships. When we finally catch the revelation that the only one whose approval we need is God's, and God loves us unconditionally, and we may not know the reason why he loves us, but that's not our business anyway. Yeah, you don't need to know why. It's his business, right? Uh, and, I, and I really want to help. I, I want to help somebody today. I want to help specifically uh, uh, my generation uh, because one of the biggest problems in this church age, this American church age, is that this oversaturation of Internet influencers and subject matter experts and gurus has given birth to an entire generation of people who are running themselves ragged, driving themselves crazy, trying to find fulfillment by, uh, how can I put this? I'm trying to find a real spiritual way to say this. Uh, I can't, clout chasing. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're running themselves ragged, clout chasing. Yeah, we want people to value us uh, for our knowledge and for our skill and for our talent and because we're handsome or charismatic and congenial and kind and because and, and it's not really uh, uh, because we want to help people but we're wearing ourselves out on social media going live all the time posting about everything hosting events and it's not just because we want to help people and share knowledge but it's because deep on the inside we believe that if we get enough likes if we get enough comments if we get enough shares if we get enough engagement preachers, if we get enough referrals, if we make enough money, uh, then in the workplace, God help me, people will value us in the marketplace, people will see us in the church, people will adore us uh, because we brought something to the table. But God wants you to see that before you brought anything to any table, you are already more loved than you could imagine. God help me. And that's the truth of the gospel. God loved you. God help me. Not because you loved him first, but he first loved you. You didn't choose God. God chose you. And God chose you before the foundation of the world. God help me. Some of us uh, don't even understand the beauty of the gospel. And we call ourselves Christians. But we don't understand the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that you owed God a debt that you did not have the capacity to pay. But God had to be paid. And the only way that God could be paid because you were broke and bankrupt spiritually and mentally and emotionally. The only way that God could pay it was to pay it himself on your behalf. And God paid it before you could give him anything that made you worthy of having it paid for you. Yeah. Uh, God says that if you would understand that your value is not measured by what you do, but it's measured by who I am, 
then you'd be delivered from the rat race of trying to please people when you recognize that there is nothing you need to produce because there's nothing you need to prove. Ooh. Some of us, uh, and I'll say us because that's safe. Uh, some of us are tired because we're trying to prove something that you can't prove. You'll never be able to prove your value to people who don't see it. And you'll never be able to prove your value to a God that don't need you. Ooh, some of us are fighting because we need to be needed. And when it shows us, when life shows us that we're not needed, instead of humbling ourselves and accepting the reality of the gospel, God help me, uh, we want to run and try to find somebody who is more needy than us so that they'll need us instead of resting in the fact that God says, I don't need you because not being needed is an offense to your flesh, not your spirit. Yeah, let me help you. Uh, your flesh, your flesh. Uh, y'all, everybody know what the flesh is. Your flesh is not your body. It's not your hands or your feet. Your flesh is the part of your nature that won't surrender to the will of God. Yeah. When the Bible talks about your flesh, it's not talking about your body part. Uh, when it says crucify your flesh, it's not telling you to nail yourself to a cross. It's telling you to put to death the part of your nature that rebels willfully against the Lord. And your flesh cannot handle the fact that it is not needed when you need to be needed. It's okay to want to be wanted. Everybody wants to be wanted. You should want to be wanted. And you shouldn't be places where you're not wanted. But when you need to be needed, that presents an unhealthy desire that is coming from the flesh. Because when you're not needed, you act crazy. And you try to find people who need you. And when you find people who need you, you find yourself drained and you don't know why. It's because you find people who pull on you because you need to be needed. And you're in this vicious cycle of being tired all the time, worn out all the time, overcommitted and under delivery because you need to be needed. But God said if you would just come to the place where you understand that your value is not measured by your productivity. It's measured by the fact that you are already loved by a God who needs nothing from you. So, so Hannah's love, God help me, I, I, I could really stay here all day. Uh, Hannah receiving love from Elkanah, even though he, he, she did not have the ability to produce children for him, presents for us a picture of God's love for us, even though we don't have anything that we can give him. Elkanah telling Hannah, why are you tripping about children when you have me? Is not Elkanah being arrogant, but it's God talking to you through the pages of this ancient text, telling you why are you tripping about that relationship that you lost, about that person that didn't accept you, about those people who didn't appreciate you, about those folk that didn't want your opinion when you already have him. You hear what I'm saying? And we've got to learn how to rest in the fact that we're loved already. Okay, this is number four and I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Um, so Hannah's life teaches us that we can't let warfare keep us from worship. That we can't allow uh, our despair over not getting what we desire to make us forget that we've gotten more than we deserve. We got to remember that sometimes God shuts off our productivity to show us that his pleasure with us is not based on what we can produce. But it's based on the consistency of a character. And then fourthly, I'm done. Hannah's life teaches us that God is great enough, hear me, to use the source of our agitation 
to drive us to a greater level of communication, which will result in our divine maturation. Let me say it again. God is so great that he will use the source of our agitation to drive us to a greater level of communication, which will result in our divine maturation. Look, God wants you to grow up. That, that, that's God's desire. It's, it's, look, uh, Thessalonians say, says it this way. I, I, uh, my father is Baptist, uh, but my mother is in the Church of God in Christ. So um, uh, my grandmother uh, is still uh, a missionary in the Church of God in Christ. Credentialed, goes to a holy convocation, women's convention, Saint Paul meeting, everything. Uh, she's looking forward to the fact that this year it's going to be back in Memphis with Bishop J.B. Fieldsick. So she's she's holding this. And my grandmother had me in summers down there in a small, dusty town called Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Uh, my, my grandmother would have me memorize this, this scripture in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, it, it's a scripture that, it, you know, it's not like, for God so loved the world, or uh, Jesus wept, or the Lord is my shepherd, or nothing like that. See, it was a crazy scripture. It didn't make sense to me, but it helped me discern in this uh, season of my life the will of God. Because it says, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, for this is the will of God concerning you. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that each one of you should learn to possess his own vessel unto sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence like the Gentiles who know not God. Let no man go and defraud his brother in any matter, for the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Right? That's you, Brother Hudson, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. Uh, he, he, he's called us to holiness, right? And if you want to know the will of God for your life, beloved, the will of God for your life is that you grow up, that you be sanctified, that you be transformed from the image of your dusty self into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. You hear God, when he sees you, don't want to see you because you're trifling, you're nasty, you're a gossip, you're a liar, you do stupid stuff all the time. And if God saw you because he cannot abide in the presence of sin, he would blot you out. But God wants to see his son when he sees you because he's always happy with you. And the reason why you should always be happy with Jesus is because God is always happy with Jesus. And if you live in Jesus, God is always happy with you. And what God wants from you, beloved, is that you be mature. As a matter of fact, shameless plug, we're going to start Bible study this summer, midweek. And what I'm teaching through this summer is a book by Peter Scazzaro. You should get it. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I want to help you give a preview of a coming attraction. The, the whole premise of the book is that it is impossible to be spiritually mature and remain emotionally immature. Yeah, it's impossible to be a spiritual giant and be an emotional child. Yeah, it is hard to say that you're full of the Holy Ghost, that you've been sanctified, and you still gossip, you still lie, you still nasty, you still trifling, you still talk crazy to folk, uh, you can't keep your mouth off of people, you know, th th that kind of stuff. So, 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 so God doesn't want you to blow up as much as he, he wants you to grow up. Yeah, and God has a way of using the agitation in your life to cause you to mature. And we see in verses 6 through 11, I'm in my seat now, how God matures Hannah. First of all, God matures Hannah in how she handles her frustration. Because the Bible says that uh, Penina makes it a point to torment Hannah because she has what Hannah wants. 
But the Bible says that instead of expressing her frustration with Panina to Panina, the Bible says she takes her frustration and agitation to the Lord in worship. God help me. And some of us, the reason why we can't be delivered from our frustration is because God uh, wants us to learn how to express our frustration the right way. And so many of us have expressed our frustration to miserable comforters, confidants who can't be trusted, unqualified experts giving you advice uh, uh, that you know you shouldn't be taking advice from when you look at the condition of their lives, but instead you're talking to people because when you're hurting and you're immature, you'll talk to whoever will listen to you. Ask me how I know. It's because I've been hurt and immature. When you're immature, you'll listen to folk that you used to make fun of. You'll take counsel from folk that you used to criticize. You'll open up your ear gate to people that you know ain't got nothing to say to you. But God says maybe the reason why I'm allowing you to continually experience frustration is because I want you to learn how to take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. I got to move. Uh, he, he teaches her how to handle, he matures handle in how uh, she handles her frustration. And not only that, uh, he matures, Hannah, check this out, by perfecting her perspective. Yeah. Because not only does God use Hannah's agitation with her life to take her into a greater level of prayer, but in her prayer, we see God change her perspective because she moves from asking God to give her something to promising God that if he gives her what she's asking for, then she will, hear me, give it back to God. Hmm. This is only possible if Hannah has the right perspective of who she is and who God is. And the reality of our lives is that many of us don't understand our position before God. Yeah. You exist as a believer. Right? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, right? I don't care what they tell you. Uh, I don't care if they tell you you're a king or you're a queen. I, I don't have Bible for that. Don't have Bible for that. Um, but I do have Bible for this. If you're a Christian, you exist in the tension of two realities. You are a slave and a son. Right? You, you're a slave and a son. Don't let the word son intimidate you ladies. Uh, the Greek word uh, for slave is doulos. Uh, the Greek word for son is huios. Uh, huios uh, is somebody who possesses an inheritance and lives in the house. It doesn't matter if it's a male or a female. You can be a male huios or a female huios. But since most, uh, most of the Bible was translated by chauvinists, they called them sons instead of offspring. But huios means offspring. Uh, uh, doulos means bond servant. And so if you're a Christian, you are a slave and you are a son. You got to live in the tension of those two realities. But the interesting thing about slaves and sons is they have this in common. Neither of them own property. Yeah. Neither slaves or sons are allowed ownership of property. If a slave has something, it has been given to them by their master for their master's use. If a son has something, it is held in stewardship for the good of their father. So neither slaves nor sons own property. And the reason why many of us can't receive from God is because we misunderstand ownership. We, we, we live under the fallacy that the stuff God has allowed us to have really belongs to us. And 
so we take possession of our time, we take possession of our money, we take possession of our families, we take possession of our relationships, we take possession of our gifts, and we try to hold them hostage before God and don't give them to God the way we're supposed to give them to God because we live under the fallacy that they belong to us anyway. But God says if you really began to understand that everything you have belongs to me, you wouldn't trip about how you manage it. You wouldn't trip about giving it back to me because you know it's mine. And that's really what Hannah is teaching us. Hannah says the reason why I can give it back to God is because it's his already. And because it's his already, check this out. This is what I've learned. Uh, uh, Stanley, I, I've learned that because it's God, he's going to get it anyway. It's up to me to decide whether he takes it or whether he receives it. God's going to get it because it's his. And I've got to decide whether he's going to take it from me or whether he's going to receive it from me. And many of us are scarred. We blamed it on the devil. We blamed it on our haters. We blamed it on our enemies. But we're scarred because we're really having to live to the effect of God having to take stuff from us when really his desire was to receive it from us. Yeah, yeah. God had to take money. Take opportunities from us. Take relationships from us. Close doors in our lives because we didn't know how to give it with an open hand. But I've come to a point in my life where I don't want God to take anything from me. Uh, because if he takes it from me, that's punishment to me. God, but if he receives it, then that's a blessing for me. And I, I want God to be pleased with me in this season of my life. I, I don't want to have to fight with God over my blessings. I, I don't want to have to fight with God because how many of y'all know, like grandmother said, your arms are too short, God help me, to box with God. God said, I want you to understand that what you have belongs to me. Let me help you. Uh, Hannah, hear me, uh, tells God, Lord, if you give it to me, I'm going to give it back to you. Fast forward to the end. Hannah gives Samuel back to God. And the Bible says that God gives her five more children. But that's not the blessing. Uh, because Hannah is not remembered for the five children that she kept. God help me. The reason why every Mother's Day, some preacher somewhere is talking about Hannah is not because of the five children that she kept at the house. God help me. She's remembered for the one that she gave to God. God help me. Uh, because she asked God to remember her. When God remembered her, she decided she was going to remember God. And because she decided to remember God, God said, I'm going to make sure nobody ever forgets about you. Come here. Let me help somebody that was contemplating what to do with your blessing. Uh, maybe what you thought was a blessing, that that influx of new income, that new business, that new opportunity, maybe that wasn't a blessing. Maybe that was the test to see if you could stand to be blessed. God help me. Uh, uh, maybe what you thought was your blessing was actually God checking to see if you were mature enough to be given something extra. 
to, to see if you were mature enough to be given overflow. And some of us, you thought that that check that you got in the mail, you thought that that new job, that raise, that new opportunity, that new relationship, that connection, you thought that that was the blessing. But God said, that ain't the blessing. I want to see if you're as good at releasing as you are at receiving. Oh, and that's why... Uh, uh, people, I, I was talking to somebody, I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, oh, it just seems like God is schizophrenic. Uh, why, why would he bless me uh, just to let me lose the blessing? Uh, and I told this person, I said, it's not that God is schizophrenic. Uh, God uh, uh, is testing you. And what you thought was a blessing was actually a test to see if you could handle more. God, help me. Uh, and see, the reason why it seems like God blesses us and then cuts off blessings is because what we think is a blessing is actually a test to see if we can be trusted with what we've been asking God for. Some of you are tripping and stressed out now with something you thought was a blessing because you're holding something in your hand that you were supposed to release back to God. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, that relationship, you were supposed to release it back to God. What do you mean, uh, Bishop? How, how was I supposed to release that relationship back to God? By still serving God regardless of the consequences to the relationship. God, help me. Uh, God, because if serving God is what got you the relationship, serving God ain't going to make you lose it. God, help me. I, I wish I had some help in here. Uh, 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 Bishop, what do you mean it was a test? That check you got uh, was a test. Uh, uh, because if worshiping God and being faithful and giving got you that financial blessing, then giving ain't going to put you in the pole house. God, help me. But God says, I want you to be able to test me, God, here. Uh, the only time, God, the only time uh, that God says test me uh, is in Malachi chapter 3, or as my Italian brethren call it, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, God says, uh, 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 the whole Bible, it says you should not test, don't tempt, don't try the Lord. But in Malachi, God gets a little agitated with his people and says, test me now herewith. And see, won't I pour out a blessing? that you won't have room enough to receive. It's interesting now because we use Malachi to talk about the tithe, and it does, uh, but really what he's talking about, he's saying, test me now herewith. He's testing you. He's saying, test me and see if I'm worthy to be trusted with what you already have. And if you trust me with what you already have, then I will pour out not many blessings, but one blessing that you won't have room enough in your storehouse to receive. What does that mean? Does that mean he's going to give me one real big blessing? No. In the Hebrew, that means that God is going to let you live under an open heaven. Yeah. Uh, uh, picture a bucket that is catching water. God, help me. God says that if you keep your hand closed, I'm going to keep the faucet closed. But if you open up your hand, I'm going to open up the faucet and allow the bucket to live under the overflow. God says that if you test me with what you have, I'll show you that I'm worthy to be trusted. This is what Hannah says. She says, look, uh, I've got to give it to God uh, because God owns it anyway. And I'm not going to let God, I'm not going to make God have to take nothing from me. I'm going to give him what he deserves. Uh, so God, God teaches Hannah how to handle her frustration. He matures her by perfecting her perspectiveness. Uh, but then God matures Hannah by showing her the true meaning of the gift. Uh, my time is up. Uh, when, when you get home, read it. Uh, verses 21 through 25 of chapter 1 show us where Samuel is born. And uh, when Samuel is born, Elkanah, Hannah's husband, 
present Hannah with an opportunity to go to church with her newborn baby. Because everybody is going to be at church. Which means that everybody that saw her come to church without a child would be able in this moment to see her with her newborn baby. She would be able to walk into church with the proof that God answers prayer. Not only that, Penina was going to be there. The person that had been making fun of her, that had been trying her, that had been testing her gangster, uh, was going to be in church. And this was the perfect opportunity for her to go into the house of God and show them, huh, I finally made it. God has answered my prayer. It's a setup for her to show out. But Hannah does something that blows my mind. She rejects the opportunity to publicly show what God has done and opts to set a private date of dedication for the baby so that she can keep her word to God. Uh, what do you mean, Bishop? Uh, everybody went to church on the same day back then. It was called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So that day of worship, everybody would have been in the temple, and that would have been her opportunity to show out. But when Elkanah asked her, uh, baby, you going to get the baby dressed so we can take him to church and show everybody the newborn baby? She says, no, I'm going to keep him here until he no longer needs to be breastfed. Because when I finally take him to church, I'm not taking him to church to show my enemies that I made it. I'm taking him to church to show my God that I can be trusted. God help me. Uh, 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 and some of us would have failed the test because we're so caught up on trying to show folk that we made it, that we ain't who we used to be, that we ain't doing what we used to do, that God has made a way, that we're finally productive, that we finally can do something. We want to get our enemies told, but Hannah shows us the real path of Christian maturity. Hannah says, I'm not going to celebrate myself, but I'm going to honor God. God, help me. Oh, God. And many of us would have failed this test uh, because we missed the lesson that God is trying to teach us by not allowing us to produce. And the lesson is this. Hear me clearly. If you're taking notes and you ain't wrote nothing else down, write this down. Right? Uh, true Christian victory is not evidenced by a Christian's prosperity. It's evidenced by a Christian's maturity. Let me say it again. True Christian victory is not evidenced by a Christian's prosperity. It's evidenced by a Christian's maturity. Not evidenced by what you have. So many people want to say, hashtag, I'm living victoriously. No, you're not. If you were living victoriously, you wouldn't have to tell everybody that you were living victoriously. Uh, if you were really living under an open heaven, people can see an open heaven. Can't you see a rain cloud in the sky? Can't you see a storm when it's coming? If you were living under an open heaven, you wouldn't have to broadcast that you were living under an open heaven. You're doing that because you're so immature that you got to show your friends everything that you got. Pause. That's how I know some of y'all lying about what y'all do. Can I tell you how I know some of y'all lying about what y'all do? Y'all be like, yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I got this going, I got that going, and you don't post nothing. That's how I know you lying. Because you're so, mature, you're so immature that every time you do anything or get anything, you post everything. So when I don't see any pictures, I know you lying about something. 
Uh, but God says, I'm trying to get you to graduate to the place where you don't have to post your life. You can live your life because you understand that prosperity is not evidence of victory, but maturity is. Okay, y'all don't get it. Maybe that's too theological. Uh, maybe that's too homiletical. Uh, let me egersonize it for you. Uh, uh, how can I? Mm. Okay. Um, you haven't made it when you blow up. You've made it once you grow up. God, help me. Tweak that. Uh, uh, tell, tell your enemies that. Uh, you haven't made it when you blow up. Uh, you've made it once you grow up. God, help me. And Hannah teaches us that true growth and maturity is displayed when instead of choosing to show my enemies that I've made it, I choose to show God that I can be trusted. And check this out. It wasn't until Hannah showed God that she could be trusted that God permanently took her productivity off pause. There are two instances when Hannah gets questioned. The Bible describes them in two uh, specifically different ways, Sophie, and it wasn't on purpose. Uh, when Hannah gets pregnant with Samuel, it says the Lord remembered her. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, Samuel means God has heard. <laughs> uh, that's why she named him that, because when Samuel was born, God remembered Hannah according to her prayer. But when she gets pregnant again and has the other five children, the Bible doesn't say that God remembered Hannah. The Bible says that God visits Hannah. <laughs> uh, but it's not a visit uh, like we visit one another. Uh, it's a visit like, hmm, how, how can I say this? Married folks, like if your mother-in-law just calls you and says, I'm coming to visit, and she don't tell you where she's going home. Uh, so she says, set up a room. Don't get me a hotel. Set up a room in the house because I'm coming to visit, right? It, 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 it's, 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 it's not just a visit. It's a visitation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when, 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 when God remembers Hannah, it's meant to mean that it is temporary. I am remembering her based on what she prayed to me, which means that the remembrance was not the blessing. The remembrance was the test. But the visitation is the blessing. God, help me. Uh, God says that if you remember me in this season, I'm not just going to remember you, but I'm going to come and dwell with you. God, help me. And the reason why we want God to dwell with us is because God does not allow unproductivity to be in a place where he's dwelling. God, help me. Uh, this is how I can tell you whether or not God is operative in your church, whether or not God is operative in your business. Is the Lord with you? God, help me. Sometimes God will give you little stuff, uh, little blessings, because he allows the grain to shine on the just as well as the unjust, but I don't want God to remember me by himself. I want God to visit me. I want him to live with me. I want him to abide with me because it is his abiding with me that changes my reality. God took her productivity off pause and allows her to have more children, which presents to us the possibility that we've got to understand that maybe the first blessing is not the blessing at all. But God wants to see, God help me, if you can stand to be blessed. And, and, and maybe the reason why it seems like God has cut off our blessings is because we're steady failing the test. You feel like you got something to prove. You feel like you got something to say. 
And when God brings you to a place where your voice isn't needed or when your gift isn't needed or when you don't have to do anything and he's really trying to get you to rest, you know you're tired, but you won't stop doing it. I never understood so many tired folk that won't stop moving, Callie. I never understood it. Uh, you, you say you're tired, you're stressed out, but you're a busybody. say you want to be still, but God give you an opportunity to be still and you won't be still. It's because deep on the inside, you still feel like you got something to prove. But God says, I want you to see you ain't got nothing to prove. The only thing you got to prove is prove that you can receive the blessing of rest. And the only way that you can pass the test of being blessed is by believing that God knows best. Here it is. I, I was talking to one of my friends this morning, um, and I, I said, Doc, uh, here's my message. Uh, here, here's my message. Here's, here, here's where I'm going. Um, and I don't really know how I'm going to close it. And uh, normally this friend I have, I can't say his name. He gives me good preaching advice, um, and I don't want to embarrass him. But normally uh, this friend gives me good preaching advice, Jay, but I, I, I need a message. I need something to close my message. He'll give me. Uh, tell you something to close my message with. He said, uh, yeah, man, uh, forget your little message, man. I, 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 got, I got to tell you a story. He said, one of my members told me a story. And I said, gosh, I'm trying to get ready to preach. Church starting an hour. I, I need something. Y'all saw I was late coming out here. It's cause I'm, it, it wasn't because I wanted to miss worship. I'm trying to figure out how to put a bow on this thing and, and send y'all to the house. Uh, Olive Garden said they got an hour and 40-minute wait already. And so uh, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to close this message. And uh, he started telling me the story. He said, man, there was a boy in my church. Uh, started working when he was 12 years old. Got his first job, paying job, when he was 12 years old. And every time he got a paycheck, his mama would come to him with her hand out and say, give me your check. Then mom would take the check to the bank, cash it, and give him a piece of his check. But he didn't know where the rest of the money went. But every time he got ready to challenge his mama and ask his mama about the check, mama said, uh-uh-uh, remember, mother knows best. So from the time he was 12 up until the time he graduated high school, every time he got paid, his mama would take a piece of his check, give it to him, and he wouldn't know what happened with the rest of his money. Now, uh, in all honesty and transparency, my friend told me, mama was on drugs at one point in his life. Uh, but he thought that his mother had been delivered. Uh, so he didn't think that mom was using the money for drugs, but uh, it bears saying that mom did have a drug problem, so the son did not know what mom was doing with the money. And from the time he was 12 to the time he graduated high school, even when the direct deposit came, Candace, mama didn't even let direct deposit go in his own account. She said, you give them my routing and account number, and I'm going to give you a piece of your check. And whenever he got an attitude, got his butt on his shoulders, felt like he was going to say something to his mama about his money that he had worked for, and how he deserved to spend it, how he wanted. Mama would say, ah, ah, remember your place and know that mother knows best. So this same young man, he gets to college and he's uh, uh, in that second semester of his freshman year. And if you ever been to college, uh, you know that second semester of your freshman year, if you ain't on a whole bunch of scholarship, that's when you get real drunk. Uh, that's when you learn to have a love affair with stuff like ramen noodles and uh, Vienna sausage and and, and, and saltine crackers, and, and you learn that, that you can, what, where they serve three for a dollar uh, burgers at, and you can get uh, a bag of chips, buy one, get one. That's when you learn how to shop on a bargain in that second semester of your freshman year because you're real broke. And uh, 
this young man, he was real broke, and he called his mother uh, around Mother's Day because he was sad that he was broke and he could not afford Yolanda to go home and see his mother for Mother's Day. <coughs> and he's on the phone with his mom, and his mom is talking to him, and they laugh, and they're joking, and then he starts crying on the phone with his mother. His mother says, baby, what's the matter? Uh, he says, mom, uh, I'm here in college, and I'm doing my best. I'm trying to make good grades, uh, and I'm broke, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And his mom asks him a question that seems random at the moment. She says, um, hey, when I sent you off uh, last fall, I put a Bible in your bag. She said, have you read your Bible? He said, Mama, I don't want to hear that right now. I, I know all my memory verses. Matter of fact, I got a Bible app on my phone. I don't have to open my Bible to read my Bible. It's electronic. She said, what did I tell you about those electronic devices? There's an anointing in the paper Bible, and uh, based on the way you're crying, I can tell that you ain't read your Bible. He said, Mama, there is nothing in that Bible that's not in the Bible app online. You tell me to turn to Psalms 23, I can scroll to it. You tell me to turn to 1 John 1 and 9, I can scroll to it. I don't have to open the Bible to read my Bible. She said, baby, you need to read your Bible. Now, Bible study is getting ready to start. I've got to leave you. Call me back after you've read your Bible. He get mad. He tosses his phone. He's sitting in his room wondering what in the world could my mom Want me to see in the Bible that I can't see in the Bible app. He's a millennial. He's tech savvy. He says, I even got logos on my computer. I can look at it in the original language. Why do I need to open my Bible? And something tells him, you know what? It's Mother's Day. You can't get your mama a present. The least you can do is open your Bible. Uh, he goes to his bag, my friend tells me, and he opens his Bible. And he says, okay, where am I going to open it to? Uh, uh, he says, well, my mom's favorite scripture is Romans 8 and 28. And it says, and we know that all things work together for the good of them who love God and are the call according to his purpose. So he opens, Chris, his Bible up to Romans 8 chapter 28, and instead of seeing the Bible verse, there's a white envelope laying in between the pages. Now, uh, I was ready to get off the phone then because I knew how I was going to close my message, but he said, wait, 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 wait. He said, it's not what you think because I was expecting the envelope to be a little chunky because mama had been taking money from my boy for the last six years. It wasn't a chunky envelope filled with all the money uh, that his mom had taken from him. When he opened the envelope, Brother Herman, what was in his Bible was a cashier's check from Merrill Lynch for an investment account that his mom had opened for him six years ago. When she went to college, when he went to college, she cashed it out, God help me. And the son had a check in his Bible for $69,143.57, God help me. The son now starts shouting. Because he was mad at his mother because she requested what he had earned. 
but she told him every time she took it from him that mama knows best. God help me. Uh, every time she took a penny from him, she said mama knows best. And when mama gave it back to him, God help me. At the exact moment when he needed it, God help me. It wasn't what he had given to his mother. His mother had given him more than he had expected. God help me. And that's all I came to tell you. God says in this season of your life, you've got to learn how to trust God, not just for your blessings, but you've got to trust him with your blessings because he is the God that knows best. I know you've been looking at your life and you've been wondering how you're going to make it. You've been looking at your life and you've been wondering how you're going to recover. But just look at somebody and say, neighbor, he's the God that knows best. God help me. He's the God that knows best. I know you've been wondering how you were going to make it in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your problems and in the midst of your pressure. But he is the God that knows best. Yeah, I got to quit. He says, he's the God who knows best. The songwriter says it this way. He says, Some, sometimes the clouds hang low. <laughs> I can hardly see the road. Then I ask the question, Lord, why so much pain? But then the songwriter gets excited. He says, but he knows, God help me. He doesn't just stop at he knows. But he says, he knows what's best for me, God help me. Although my weary eyes, they can't see. So I'll say, thank you, Lord, God help me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I won't complain. And that's what your testimony needs to be in spite of everything you're going through. You don't serve a God who knows, but you serve the God who knows best. Put your hands together and give God praise.